on the Riabu podcast, we welcome one and all to 2022. We're well and truly now into the new year, and uh, Simon Littlewood and I are here to mull over. Not necessarily much better year. No, I mean uh, the challenges of cash flow and survival for small and medium-sized enterprises continue. There is light at the end of the tunnel, but we're going to look at what's going on in a few specific markets around the world to see if we can discern some themes and offer some. Useful Riabu advice. Yes,、uh, starting with China, the government is very keen to grow the sector of small and medium enterprises, but many are doing it tough, and the government is having to step in again. In the UK, forecasts say that we'll have another four hundred thousand or so small and medium enterprises close, following a similar amount in the year just gone. And Eastern Europe, positive expectations, but a cautionary tale. As more than half of Eastern European companies employ some sort of credit insurance to ensure that they will get paid on time, so Simon, let's start with China. This is a country which, by definition, is relying on SMEs just like everybody else. Eighty percent of the non-government sector consists of SME output, and the government has been very keen to support the SMEs, having spent 8.6 trillion Chinese yuan, about 1.35 trillion US dollars. To shore them up by reducing taxes out, and fees, I actually I had to Google it. What a remarkable sum of money,、yes. though! One point three trillion to throw that at SMEs, but it just goes to show, firstly, how important SMEs are, even in a country like China, and how tough it is to do business in China as an SME. And let's not forget that one of the reasons that the Chinese economy has grown so magnificently over the last couple of decades. Has been a massive increase in exports, much of that from SMEs, and that what we've seen over the last two years are some very specific difficulties, making it harder for companies of every size, but particularly SMEs who lack scale, to export cost efficiently. Those things are the trade dispute, for example, where sometimes procurement has shifted from China to other countries because purchasers are concerned about the risk of doing business with China. And secondly, actually, much more significantly, in the last six to nine months, the unit costs of moving stuff around anywhere have gone up enormously,、mm. meaning that margins are eroded. And I suppose when you read、uh, news from Germany, for example, much the same thing: power costs are up so much, shipping costs. You've mentioned, you know, you wouldn't think there was a pandemic going on with lots of excess capacity. Yeah, and it's interesting because I chair a group of finance leaders, and I sat in a room yesterday. With about twenty of them, and our topic was supply chain. And it, it, what was interesting was that finance directors don't normally spend most of their time thinking about <laughs> supply chain. But if you think about this, if you're if you are a finance lead for a company of any size, how much profit are we going to make? What are our margins going to be? What are our costs? Those kind of questions get asked regularly of the finance lead by the CEO and the general manager. And it's an absolute nightmare to try and answer this because not only are those things happening that we've talked about, which is you know trade wars and Growth in cost, but there's no clear end to the volatility. So we're, we're looking at a period, at least, probably for another year, where we're going to continue to see ups and downs in 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 costs and、uh, and in supply variability, and that makes it very difficult. One thing businesses hate is a lack of predictability. If you can't predict, you can't plan, you can't invest, and so on. You know, so pity the poor SME in China. Can the government compensate for these fundamental difficulties? Well. One obvious way that they can compensate is that they can continue to encourage the overall shift in the Chinese economy from being an export economy 
to being a domestic supply economy. And, and much of what they've done over the last uh, five or six years in particular has been to accelerate that change. Yeah. The second thing that they've done is the much maligned Belt and Road Initiative, which has been partly designed at least to utilize significant capacity that's been grown in China, but has now been consumed, you know, making diggers, producing cement, project planning, all these things, and focusing that externally. So at the same time as to build strong relationships and infrastructural links with countries around the region. So you'll, you'll continue, that's the right strategy. And you'll continue to, much despite what you hear, you'll continue to see that grow. But I think we're supposed to be talking about receivables. We? <laughs> well, actually, firstly, I'm really curious what the, what those finance chiefs said. I mean, as you said, supply yeah. chain management isn't really on top of their agenda. What were they saying? Well, well, uh, you know, they're looking for solutions and they're concerned with volatility. They're really concerned with procurement in many cases, and they're having to find ways to be much more versatile, I suppose. Um, Agile is a very popular term these days, agile in where you procure stuff from. Because what happens is a sudden change in availability or costs to serve or even quarantine, mm. you know, which itself has had significant, significant impact. And one of the things that, you know, those of us who sit in offices and make a living in that way, one of the things we tend to forget is that the world, the world economy is not actually driven by people who, who sit in offices. It's driven by people who drive trucks, <laughs> work in factories, mm. fill ships with petrol, whatever it happens to be. You know, and a lot of these jobs are limited or curtailed. Factories have shut down because, because they can't get the resources and so on. Or because the staff are on, on COVID leave yeah. or whatever. Yeah. I love the fact that governments are taking the importance of SMEs more seriously, whether you talk about China or, as we will do in a minute, Eastern Europe or UK. But the fact of the matter is, when it comes right down to it, governments are limited in terms of what they can do to help you. You know, If you have a business and you have access to customers and you can make your costs work, the way to get the cash in, which is kind of what we're focusing on, is about how you manage your own processes and relationships with with customers. It's really not about what the government does for you, because at the end of the day, they might provide you with a short-term subsidy to coast you over, but they can't change the fact that unless you're prepared to have an early discussion with your customer on payment terms and stick to what you agree, unless you produce an accurate and timely invoicing, timely invoicing, we've talked about this a lot, Mark, it's Mm. just astonishing how often you don't get that. And the, my finance leaders said the same thing. Oh, for, really? Well, for small suppliers, that you don't get accurate documentation, right, in order yes. to pay. Because if, if it's cross-border, it's more than just an invoice. There's a bunch of other stuff that has to be compliant as well. You, you know, actually, funny you should say that, because I recently received um, in, in our business an invoice from an SME supplier, and it struck me that that he treated his invoice a little bit like a grenade. You know, you pull out the, pl- the pin, you throw it at the customer, and hopefully the customer will catch it and defuse it and then pay you at the end mm. of it. So, for example, in his invoice, he had his bank account number and, and, of course, the services rendered. I can close one eye that the company name is not always spelled correctly. But if you have an account in Australia and you're invoicing somebody in Singapore, you've got to include the SWIFT code. And yet there seems to be this expectation that somehow my finance team is going to find the SWIFT code for him. Mm. Why should we? It's your job. It's your invoice. Yes. I mean, your attitude has to be, let's remove every opportunity that my customer might have not to be able to pay me. Because, and we've talked about this a lot, you know, there's this issue of every human being and every commercial person generally wants to 
invest in a narrative about himself that makes him out to be the good guy. In other mm-hmm. words, if I'm going to deliberately, pay, if I'm going to try and hang on to my money, let's say, which is a prudent thing to do if you're trying to run a company to maximize your cash flow, it's great. <laughs> if my supplier makes a boo-boo, yes. uh, which makes it difficult for me to fork out. It's not that I don't want to fork out. It's that I quite like hanging on to my money. So so I can be, feel good about myself and still not pay you yes. because, because you've omitted to do something very obvious and very basic. And, of course, we run Riabu, so we feel the pain of SMEs. But any other person in a finance department will say, okay, well, he hasn't included the SWIFT code. Incidentally, he also didn't include his address. And so anybody who's ever sat down at an internet banking portal and tried to send money overseas will know that you have to include the address of the recipient. It's not the responsibility of my finance department to now, what, look them up in the phone book, you know, or, or to find the SWIFT code. And yet often when you go back to, to suppliers and say, hey, you, you know, would like to pay your invoice, but I can't unless you provide these details. They then look at you as if to say, well, you know, why wouldn't you? Because you owe me the money. Yeah, I'm trying to pay you, but I can't. Right? This is what I mean about, you know, they, they just pull out the grenade, kind of throw it into my finance department and then hold their ears shut, hoping for the best. Part of it is this. And, and, and you know, in our book that we wrote together, Let the Cash Flow, we talk about this a little bit. Nobody goes into business because they think they're good at producing invoices. We go into business because we have an avocation, something we love or we're particularly good or we have a disruptive product or whatever we have. And very often for many, many companies, the whole business of writing and issuing the invoice or even setting terms and having a, a payments uh, agreement is secondary or even tertiary to the fundamental business of finding customers. And too many people, particularly in SMEs, think that as long as they've got customers and the longer they've got, the, they've got orders, they're going to have cash in the bank, when the very reverse is true. So getting the basics right in terms of having that agreement on terms and getting an accurate invoice out covers a lot of, a lot of the gaps in late payment, because it's in a significant percentage of of situations, the reason you're not getting paid on time is because you make it easy yes. for a customer who has the money to hang on to it and, or pay someone else. Yeah. So reflecting on your decades of work in China, in fact, I think one of the first times we met was in Shanghai, wasn't it? We not? did, we did. I mean, does the same theory apply? I mean, if, are there any cultural issues that let a me, Chinese SME Let me share do? something with you about China. I, I haven't found this to have changed, and we're going back a long time now. 25 years ago, when I first started working in China, with the American uh, Chamber of Commerce in Beijing, we did a survey of a lot of companies in China because payment issues were were a big thing. Mm -hmm. And the thing that we found, I think this is really important, is that surprisingly, there was no correlation between the length of time it took to get paid and the size or the market share of the supplying company. I'll say that again. It doesn't matter how much of a market share I've got, how much of an influence I have over my customer. That does not directly correlate to how quickly I get paid. In fact, we found that small companies who had to pay really close attention to cash flow were on the whole getting paid faster than the big companies simply because they did all the right things because they couldn't afford not to. Big companies can afford not to. Mm. So it's thinking seriously about payment terms, insisting that they're agreed in writing before you start doing business, ensuring that as a company you communicate with one voice. And you and I have talked about this a great deal. In other words, you don't incent your salesman to go off and sell everything, but don't bother to ask him to actually talk about payment terms because he will. He will. He'll go off and sell everything. Yes. Uh, but your customer will say, "Oh, I didn't know you wanted me. You want me to pay you too." <laughs> <laughs> but did you find in, in in all your work in China and also in more recent years that somehow this was not a, a conversation that you could possibly have? Are there any cultural barriers 
to having an open and honest conversations with your Chinese customers? It doesn't matter. You know, I'm going to sound like an old soldier here, but, you know, the first time I went more than 20 miles from London, which is a long time ago, people were saying, oh, that'll never work here. And then when I went to Europe, where I did about 10 years, it was, oh, you don't understand France. You don't understand Italy. And then when I got to Asia, it's none of that will work here. Well, you know what? None of that's true. The fact of the matter is everywhere in the world, if you're selling a good or a service to a customer, he knows perfectly well that he's got to pay you. Okay, I mean, the notion that somehow there are cultures where that simply can't be talked about and, and <laughs> is, is kind of the no-no. I, it, there are different there's different etiquette in terms of how you broach it and, and so on and so forth. But the reality is a fundamental part of business is I provide you with, I persuade you that you want something that I can give you and you pay me something for it. Uh, yes. <laughs> and, the re- and everyone understands and the that. The Chinese especially understand that very well, yeah, right? They're very, they actually do, very business But they're also oriented. extremely good. If they sense that you might not be sure, or if you're new in the market and you're trying to please them and, you know, they think, yeah, at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's a uh, business is about me ending up with more cash. I mean, so. So the reason why things might be different in China is not because of the Chinese, but because of the attitudes of foreigners selling in China. Uh, partly. But I mean, of course, we talk, I think here we're talking about mainly Chinese SMEs uh, who are presumably selling uh, if they're not exporting. I know, but I'm trying to milk you for all your information, <laughs> okay, well, not just this one. Well, I think, you know, if I, I pity those SMEs in China, it's very hard. You know, the, very often. The issue is that a percentage of your customers, wherever you are, if you're an SME now, are essentially illiquid. So you're flogging a dead horse. So, uh, so as we as we argue in our book, there are two kinds of customer. Be clear about those two kinds of customer. One kind of customer is a customer that doesn't have the money, in which case it's absolutely no good beating them up. You've got to strike a deal. What you should do if you want to go on supplying them, because you think that maybe it's a temporary shortage of cash, is to come up with a what's known usually as a diminishing balance agreement, which means that you supply them, but every month they owe you less, not more. So what they pay you every month is equivalent to what you supplied plus some of what they owe you previously. That's a good deal because it means you're slowly eroding the debt, but they stay in business. Because if you put down the hammer and say, okay, no more, and you are providing an essential good or raw, raw material or whatever, then they go out of business. Well, that doesn't really help you either. But the second kind of customer, which is most customers, is they are in business and they've got cash. The question is, who do they pay? And it's about thinking about all the things you need to do to make sure they pay you on time, starting with having an accurate invoice. Mm-hmm. And then with the SWIFT code, please, yeah, and the address. And all those kinds of things. So, look, there's every reason to be positive about this, because the fact of the matter is that if you pursue the eight things that we talk about in our book, the virtuous revenue cycle, you will be way ahead of your competitors who don't in terms of ensuring that you get paid. Customers that actually have cash in the bank will have you at the top of their pile. With China looking to cultivate a million small and medium enterprises by 2025, there's still a lot of opportunity for them to get it right before they even start. Yes, I think there is. The the general issue with receivables and the reason why I get to talk about it all the time uh, after decades is that it's not something that people particularly find stimulate. It's a fundamental, fundamental need for every business to ensure that the cash comes in. And yet people don't want to talk about it. They mm. want to talk about everything else. Yes. They want to talk about their fancy new company car. They want to talk about this new customer that they've just got. Their marketing to, program. Their brilliant new products, their, their new website. All of that's absolutely fantastic. But if at the end of the day, nobody pays you, you don't have a business. Okay. Yes. That's the reality. You have an and my first hobby. boss said that to me. Uh, years ago years ago and he was absolutely right yeah Yeah. 
Well, it's not just in China that SMEs are having trouble getting paid. I'm very surprised to hear just how many companies in the UK aren't getting paid on time because the United Kingdom has had a prompt payment code for a long time. Why is it uh, that Lord Young and the prompt payment code and the, the tweakings to it to ensure that you can't uh, you know, lump it with your subcontractor, the payment that is, why is it that a recent survey of 1,200 small businesses has found that one in three of them have seen late payment of invoices increase over the last three months, with almost one in 10 saying that the problem is so bad that it was threatening the viability of their business? Yeah, I mean, those are frightening figures. But the reality is governments can't make companies pay people on time. And, you know, we looked at the prompt payment code in the UK. We had a bit of fun with it, if you recall. We looked more than a year ago at this, and we found that there were lots of well-known brands that had signed this prompt payment code, which, is, which was to pay their supplies in 30 days, as I recall. Mm-hmm. And yet no sooner had they signed them than that they were on the, um, the naughty list, yes. shall we say, for not actually having met that requirement. Because the fact of the matter is, when it comes down to it, your marketing and PR department might think it's great for your PR to say, oh, yes, we're going to pay all SMEs in 30 days. But your treasurer and your financial director is going to say, uh-oh, if we do that, here's what's going to happen to our share price. Because analysts look at free cash flow really, really, it's one of the top things that they look at. Yes. So if all of a sudden all the cash goes out of your business because you've decided to be nice and pay SMEs, your share price drops, the share options, which are owned by many of your senior managers, will cease to be worth as much and so on and so forth. So um, I, I think it's it's sort of redundant, this discussion, because when a government says, we have this prompt payment code, which, by the way, nobody takes any notice of. And now, uh, because because more companies are going bust, we're going to we're going to you know have another prompt payment code with even shorter terms. I don't know about that. And the notion that that, that they should be able to enforce that legally is, it, I'm sorry, it's a really bad idea because they're you know get, the last thing you want to do is have the government coming along and looking over your shoulder and saying who is who are you paying, who you're not being paid by. It's not that I don't want SMEs to be paid. It's just that that's not somewhere that the government should get involved, penalizing companies for, for paying late. Well, like I said, it also opens the risk that the, that the customers will find different ways, uh, will well, find workarounds. We know what you know. they'll do. And we've already talked about this a little bit because 80% of the time you don't get paid on time. We have learned at Riabu over thousands of pieces of work over decades. It's because you have opened the door for your customer to pay you late. And it could be something as as trivial as you forgot to mention a number or, you've address, got, or you've got something Swift wrong. Code. So all that will happen if they start leaning on large, and, and the bigger the company, the more resources they can devote to this wonderful game of finessing the invoicing system. So I make a prediction with a fair degree of confidence, which is that if they start penalties for companies to pay SMEs late, big companies will then immediately start to look at their procurement practices. We'll add some bells and whistles that uh, weren't there before. They won't tell anyone. They'll put them in and you'll find that all of a sudden the terms and conditions. Because, you know. So in essence, you're saying that that they'll say, we've got to make sure that we shore up our, our free cash flow, which is the money left over yeah. after you've paid everything. Yeah, yeah. And in, in if, if the government now forces us to, through some sort of strict mandatory. Well, fines. Uh, fines, you know, this type of system, then, well, then they're going to get their own back. Well, the government, have, no, the government. The exception to the fine is if I can show that my suppliers somehow failed to meet their commitments, right? Because right. I'm, I'm not going to fine you for paying an invoice late if they didn't send me an invoice or if the invoice is wrong. Or... Absolutely. It so, opens up to so all sorts of rules. So what do I it? do? I add lots of wrinkles to the supply process in a gentle, loving way. And all of a sudden, I'm able to report significantly more errors or emissions 
in my supplier invoices than I was able to do before. So than able to do, right? Yeah, so I could meet. So you found many more errors than well, you could I, I mean, I don't want to sound horribly cynical, but anyone, anyone, uh, look, write to us. You're an SME. Have you not encountered large companies that have absolutely Farron-esque procurement <laughs> policies? You know, Byzantine uh, <laughs> procurement policies where there are pages and pages and pages of terms. And frankly, you don't read them. You tick the box and you go ahead and you do the deal. And then you discover later on that there are a couple of little things that you yes. should actually have read. And as a consequence that you're not going to be, you might not even be able to get into their system. I mean, I know we've had this, you and I. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, man, I tell you, the, you know, we, we thought we were onboarded, very large multinational, household name, everybody knows them, and discovered having onboarded, and we, we kind of celebrated because, you know, we were quite, quite pleased to win this deal. We even got the purchase order through the procurement system. When it then came time to invoice, we found that this procurement system did not accept invoices. It then took us another three weeks to onboard with another procurement system where we could upload the right, so so you talk about uh, but, but adding wrinkles, but they hadn't gone out of their way to tell you about this. No, of In course fact, not. Not only that, they'd actually worked quite hard to ensure that that topic was avoided, as I recall, because yeah. you and I talked about it. At well, the time. We, we 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 thought we were onboarded. You know, as I said, we was we were high fiving. Great, we're onboarded. Great, the onboarding is complete, and here now is the purchase order. Bottom, bottom invoicing was a different. Story. Bottom line: if you're an SME, this is the thing. The differentiating factor in whether or not you get paid, assuming a customer is solvent, isn't whether or not the government is threatening your customer. It's it's whether or not you have been absolutely crystal clear about what your expectations are and agreed that in writing, that you're prepared to back that up by having all of your senior management carry that message, that you have totally accurate invoicing, which captures all of the customer requirements right from the get-go. And we write about this in the book because, as we just heard, that was a very good example from Mark, you, you sometimes have to tease this stuff out. Believe it or not, they're not going to volunteer that if you don't give them X, Y, or Z, you're not going to get paid on time mm. because that's just the way the game is played. So you need to you need to have a good response to yes. that, which is to tease out that information. Once you've got the information out, and um, we put a list of things in the book that you typically should ask for as a minimum, then you have a significantly greater likelihood of being the one that gets paid on time. And they yeah. won't mind because it's not personal. It's just business, right? Yes. Mike Cherry, you're the national chairman of the Federation of Small Businesses, FSB. In your contribution to this story, you wrote that there are so many issues that confront SMEs. It's no wonder that the number of SMEs is falling in the UK. For example, admin costs for importers and exporters because of the whole Brexit thing. And now you have to you know, country of origin type of regulations. You've got national insurance contributions that will increase with the hype in, hike in the jobs tax, a rise in dividend taxation. Business rates are going up. Payments for fuel and utilities are at, the, at their highest level since 2014. And getting, and getting higher this winter. Um, yeah. What, what is it about power costs? I mean, just on the side, I don't want to sidetrack into climate change, but, you know, at the time of COP26 in Glasgow, China celebrated uh, maximum, the, the highest ever output of coal in one day, 12 million tons. So on the one hand, you know, there's all this good conversation about climate change, which I feel is important. We must have. But when you then hear of SMEs facing higher power charges because we can't get enough gas from Russia into and, Germany. And, and or, old ladies dying because they can't afford, because they're making choices between eating and paying eating costs. Right. And even in a wealthy country like the UK, and this is one of the half dozen richest countries in the world, it's a real issue. My mother is 90 years old. 
She is aware of these issues. Mm. She's going to be able to afford the fuel because she's on a good pension. But she has many friends who are genuinely worried about this. So isn't it funny how electricity has become such a big bugbear? Anyway, Mike well, we, Cherry. We've, we've, just taken, we've learned to take it for granted. That's the issue. We've forgotten that these were not things that we had 100 years ago everywhere. 150 years ago. Okay, okay, yes. <laughs> well, it depends, where, you, depends you. where you're from. Actually, for most of the <laughs> world, true. it's more recent than that. Yes. Um, but electrification in the first couple of decades of the 20th century, I think. But uh, anyway, um, <laughs> but of course, Mark, being rather older than me, can, oh, can, can remember all that. Very, he can remember the, the man walking down the street lighting the gas lamps at night. Yes. He absolutely cannot. Yes. But thank you, thank you for. Uh, I'll take the wisdom part of that, but not the age part of that. Anyway, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. The bottom line is that if you're in the UK, as Mike Cherry says, you know, you face an extra hurdle. What about if you're a UK SME? Is there any way that you can apply the virtuous revenue cycle in an environment where you're now having to deal with customers in the continent, on the continent, with these additional regulations? So, 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 let, let, so the facts about the virtuous revenue cycle are there are structural issues when it comes to doing business, which will affect everybody. What following the virtuous revenue cycle assures you of is that compared to other people in the same boat as you, providing similar products to similar markets, you will fare better. So, you know, uh, one of the things we're doing is, we, is we, we, we do benchmarks of DSOs for particular industries. Well, you can be fairly sure that the ones that have a lower DSO versus a higher DSO are the ones that do the eight things that we say that they should do. But of course, SMEs in the UK are laboring under a huge and entirely new burden of compliance related to what's happened as a result of Brexit. And, you know, these things were, de were deliberately and cynically talked down by the politicians that led the UK down that road. And OK, mm. I mean, I've accepted that Brexit is a thing. It wasn't something that I wanted or indeed most business people. Mm. Um, but there we are. You're talking about 30 or 40 pages of stuff that need to be filled in to send a container from the UK to France, whereas previously there, was there none. were none. Yes. You know, and um, how anybody thought this was a good idea is just totally beyond. Um, yeah, well, well, they didn't think. I think that's probably well. Important. I think it was it was political advantage combined with the fact that there were a lot of people in England that were very unhappy and didn't think they had a voice. The same reason that Trump got elected. So it's more of more of a, of, a, of a vote of protest than a rational thing. But it is deeply sad because it's damaging a lot of people. And as usual with these things, it'll be that those least able to weather these storms that will fare the worst. And you know, my heart goes out. There, there are SMEs, and I think this report, I think you were mentioning this, Mark, this report says this. You know, the ability to export, many SMEs are saying that their markets have dried up or it's simply no longer viable for them to export. What's happening is that because the costs have changed, products that are being supplied from the UK to Europe are now going to be supplied within the Eurozone simply because none of those tariffs, none of those hurdles exist, right? Mm. So you've got that to deal with, and you can't get away from that. If we accept that that's something that everyone has to deal with, well, you need to make sure that you do it efficiently, so don't ignore it. So as far as documentation is concerned, make sure you've understood it, take advice, and get a good team in place to do what you need to do. Once that's done, in the context of getting paid on time, follow the eight principles of the virtuous revenue cycle, and you will have the best available payment cycle within your peer group. That I can promise, yeah. Even if the customer is in France? Yes. The French do pay. Oh really? Yes. Oh, right. Okay, that's good. <laughs> so, so just because you're, you're in, a, in the UK post Brexit doesn't mean you should get paid any later. There are structural reasons why why the, the the time it takes from the time that you get an order 
what's known as the order to cash cycle, which begins with the time that my customer says, yes, I'll have 10 of those to the time that the money goes in the bank. That whole process is longer now because it takes longer to get the compliance dealt with at the front. It takes longer to get the product to where you're going because it does, instead of being able to just drive straight through the tunnel, they have to submit a whole bunch of documentation, right, which mm. has to be checked when they arrive in France. Given those things, once you get the product there, the issue is the same, which is they don't. the payment terms normally start when the customer gets the product. Not always, but they genuinely do. So mm. in effect, your investment of cash in that supply chain right. cycle has increased, right, by however long is added mm. to it. You know? And through no fault of the customers, really. No fault of the customer, no fault of the supplier. So a couple of implications. Customer might say, look, I'm terribly sorry, but not only is this taking longer, but you can't be certain about how long it's going to take because we've got variability here. If the, if the lorry queue happens to be particularly long. As it has been. Yeah, or if everyone's away because they're ill with COVID and they can't actually inspect the documentation, then, you know, I'm running a business, says your French customer, and I need to have reliability. I'm going to buy stuff from somebody that's nearer to me. And, that, and by the way, that thought process, it doesn't just hold true for, for Europe as a result of Brexit. One of the things that are very compelling supply chain guy who I know said recently is distance is back. In other words, whereas we we went through decades of accepting we can buy stuff from further and further and further away if it's cheaper because we can be reasonably certain that we can get it to us at an affordable cost in a predictable period of time. All of a sudden, none of that holds true anymore. So distance is back. So we're now building in the notion that we need to have a significant chunk of what we depend on most available to us reasonably close by with a minimum level of risk. So you're seeing a massive rejigging of supply chains everywhere. So even had Brexit not happened, it's possible that some of that would have occurred anyway. So right. pity the SME in England, yeah? Yeah. Um, well, and finally, not just in the UK, even on the continent, there's an increased uh, worry about payment terms, according to the Atradius Payment Practices Barometer for <laughs> Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe is probably not the region that we look at terribly often, but it's instructive to see how countries which are arguably lower down the food chain, as far as the G20 and so on are concerned, how they're faring. And it really appeals from the Cetradius report that uh, as, as recently as October 2021, just a couple of months ago, the number of uh, companies doing it tough is actually no higher or lower than in other parts. Half of the region's businesses reported no change in their levels of day sales outstanding. Two in five of uh, businesses anticipate an increase in insolvencies. And while in general the barometer seems to have not uh, worsened particularly much, nobody can really claim that things have improved to any measure either, which is why more than half of them, according to Atradius, which cr provides credit insurance and possibly has a vested interest in saying this, but you know, 56% <laughs> of businesses, that, well, it's true, right? 56% of the businesses polled across the region took out credit insurance in 2021. So the list is a bit strange because there's a wild card in there and it could well be that the wild card, which is Turkey, has become a wild card only in the last six to eight months because the other countries, if I'm correct, are in Mm -hmm. uh, Europe? No, because what's happened is because of some rather eccentric policy by uh, the Turkish leader, the Turkish currency has lost 80% of its value against mm. the dollar, and you're looking yes. at a massive economic crisis. So they can't actually pay their bills. They can't find them. You know, we talked about heating houses. It gets very cold in Turkey, particularly in the mountains in the east, and they depend hugely on external supplies of gas because they don't have much. They are struggling to actually pay for that this winter struggling. They're actually having to ask individual consumers 
to give back their US dollar savings. That's the So if you're selling stuff to Turkey, good luck. Um, yes. and, and they're not in Europe, first of all, so you've got, you've got more tariffs and complexity. But there is a serious, serious liquidity crisis coming in Turkey. Yes. My heart goes out to them as, as they go into winter. This is an avoidable crisis, entirely down to political choices. But anyway, let's, let's leave that. As far as the other countries are concerned, and you know, they're in Europe. So the basic realities of who they're supplying to, mostly they're supplying over land, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. so, so the supply chain difficulties have not changed to the extent that they've changed, say, between the UK and Europe, because we're talking about putting stuff on, on a truck and moving yep. it down a road or possibly up the Danube on a, on a large barge. I don't know. Bulgaria, Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, Romania. And Slovakia. So rivers yep. and highways, basically. Yeah. Um, How much longer Hungary and Poland will be in the EU, of course, is another question. Well, you know, I hope the EU, I mean, it's, I'm kind of with them. But anyway, that's another, that's another issue. Uh, it's a whole other issue, isn't it? It's a tricky situation and things could well get worse because so many input costs are going up. Most of these countries in Eastern Europe are not energy independent. They have to buy their energy. Mostly they're buying their energy from the east, from, from, from Russia and other parts of Central Asia. Uh, and those prices are going to go up very significantly. So, so that's a major input cost, which people are going to have to. You know, and how do you deal with that? I mean, we had an interesting discussion. I mentioned earlier, we had our finance group this week. But one of the challenges that, that you have is if your input costs are constantly changing, let's say the cost of a container goes up by 30% every month, or then it goes down, then it goes up, or fuel, uh, or some other staple, you have to change your customer price if you're not going to lose money. Mm. But because of the level of volatility that we're seeing, you have to do that pretty often. And that's not easy. A real challenge if you're selling stuff to a customer, you've persuaded him to buy from you. And now you're having to look at your costs and say, oh, my God, we can't charge that. We'll lose We'll lose money. Yes. So you've got to put your prices up all the time. How do you do that? Well, the airlines sold it by having a fuel surcharge so that the price of petrol or the jet A1 or whatever the fuel yeah. is called is, uh, is independent. And, yeah. other, and other industries do that. So, for example especially chemicals industry, which is mostly downstream oil products of one kind or another, they have clauses in some of their contracts, which are about the volatility of the oil price, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, which but that's an input price for, keps, for chemicals uh, well, no, as opposed okay. to a transport cost. No, it's, not, it's both. So, 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 you, so I was going to come to the transport. So, so you've got a product that you're selling, which is made through a combination of things, including a downstream product of the oil industry, okay, which could be a gas or oil or some variation of that, yeah? But in addition, you've got to move that around. So you, yes. what you can do is you can say, if my input cost, which constitutes 40% of my cost, goes up within a particular range, and I can show you, customer, what I'm paying, you know, this is not uncommon, this is already established, then I can increase my invoicing, mm-hmm. can, my price by that much. The second area where I have seen this, and I remember seeing this with a client in Australia when there was fuel price volatility, is if you're moving stuff a long way, you know. As you have to do in Australia. you have to do in Australia. So, for example, this is a client in, botany which is right on the eastern coast of australia and they were moving stuff in some cases all the way to perth you know chemical products the actual cost of the diesel in the truck was an issue and again they had a surcharge that they were allowed to yes but you can't do that if you're manufacturing let's say toothpaste and then you have a fuel surcharge every by every time no, you buy it of course you, what's the margins on toothpaste are absolutely brilliant right. uh, you really what we should be doing is actually we should be closing the studio and manufacturing toothpaste. It's interesting. That, <laughs> really? It's interesting. <laughs> Are you that you, serious? Interesting that you, <laughs> interesting that you mentioned that actually, because that's I was going to talk about that afterwards. No, I. Uh, <laughs> Seriously, no, it's just generally consumer products have absurd margins. You know, absurdly high. Yes, of course they do, because there's nothing in them really.
Are, are you saying that the toothpaste? I'm saying the is, packaging right. that, that of the box and the tube costs more to produce than the toothpaste, significantly more. Really, as do as do nearly all personal products. So 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 makeup, you know, aftershave. Scent, whatever it happens to Well, be. and then you, you label it for women, and then it's twice the price straight away. Well, then you give it a fancy title, you know. <laughs> yes. Um, and we, the stuff oh, in the bottle is the same. Should we have a Riabu uh, range of scents to go with it? So, so then only do you get paid on time. You mm. smell good with it. <laughs> yes. Well, and if there's something fishy about your customer, it'll be uh, nicely hidden. But, the, but I, I suppose for, for companies in all of the countries that we've talked about, whether that's Eastern Europe, the United Kingdom, or China, that this volatility has to be managed somehow. So if not a fuel surcharge type of arrangement, what other options do you have? Well, let's talk about this uh, because this this is a very interesting question because volatility is not going to go away. Um, One of the things that you and I have talked about previously is the need to manage risk in an effective way. So if you're the leader of a business, you need to start managing risk in a much more proactive way. So you need to look at what might happen, whether it's the broader question of where do I source stuff from? Because if instead of buying it from... A thousand miles away because it's cheaper. I recognise it because of the additional risk. I'm better off paying a bit more and, and buying it from next door, say from Malaysia if I'm in Singapore. Or um, so there's that. Firstly, and then there's secondly, classic risk evaluation scenario is what are the risks that could affect my business? And COVID pandemic would be added now, whereas previously it would almost not have, almost certainly not have appeared. Mm. You know, fuel price surcharges, war and disease, whatever, uh, is you, you you understand what they are and what impact they might have in your business and you mitigate those risks before things go wrong, not right. after they've gone wrong. So you can do things to mitigate supply chain risk by spreading your supply. So if you're buying, if you're dependent on one main supply for everything, What's interesting is that have you been following the China saga because they fell Which out one? the one on the coal imports because they fell out with Australia and then Indonesia abruptly started to ration coal as well, putting China in a bit of a spot. Right? Have you not been following that? I haven't. It's very no. interesting because you know coal supplies are concentrated in a, in a couple of countries around the world, so that's been quite interesting. So if you are dependent on a single geography or a single supplier for to a significant extent. One obvious strategy to mitigate that is to is to spread your risk by trying to get multiple supplies. It might mean you pay slightly more, but if it guarantees supply, it could be the difference between business interruption and non-business yeah. interruption. Especially if you're not able to pass on the, the higher costs to the customer. No, that's right. Because the first thing that people listening to us talk about this, you know, what, what you're currently thinking about is it's all well and good to talk about a fuel surcharge, but what if the customer refuses? Yeah, so you need do need to look at your customers differently. So there are the ones that you need to hold close to you, the, the 80-20 rule, 20% of your customers will give you 80% of your future profit. Try and adapt to their needs, try and build your costs so that you can continue to serve them. But for most of your other customers, some of whom will only be marginally profitable because they are for every company, you can think about creative ways to deal with them. The last resort is not to deal with them at all. The better the better solution is to find an intermediary to serve them through or some other low-cost channel. Automation is, is good here. Mm-hmm. But if you automate your entire customer supply process, mm-hmm. and I'm hearing about, my goodness, one of the industries that is fundamentally decimated by the things that we're talking about is the food and beverage industry. I have a friend who has two very successful uh, restaurants in Singapore, where his accent is on brand, superb food, brilliant service. And he's basically seeing his business just disappearing. His view is that food and beverage businesses will in future consist of really low, cheap stuff at the bottom and very expensive stuff at the top where where it's not price sensitive. And there's and this is quite really? interesting. Yeah. And, and then the, so, the so, bottom so, end will so, be served so, by central kitchens or something. Uh, or, or automation. 
And this is where I'm going with this. So there's so he's looking at investing in a new pizza franchise where the entire process is automated. And it's the most magnificent thing you've ever seen. There's this machine which consists of sort of yellow and, and red moving parts where all the bits of the, of the pizza are kind of fed in automatically. And it makes whatever you order, it makes it completely without involving any human beings at all and delivers it to you. Right. So the only thing is you go in, you put in your order, much as you do at McDo now, mm-hmm. um, and then you go and sit down and then, you know, <laughs> sort of steamy thing, you right. know, um, and, uh, and it lands in front of you because, because there's no human element. Because the, because the other thing, and we haven't talked about this, but among the costs that finance directors have to manage, there's a huge increase in wage costs. Interesting historical fact, you know, very often global pandemics are causes of significant wage inflation, you know. 600 years ago, the Black Death in Europe resulted in massive changes in wage structures and social structures because costs went up so much. Um, We're seeing that in many countries now. It's tough for SMEs. You should be sensitive to where you buy stuff from, sensitive to who you're selling it to, hang on to your key customers, sensitive to the use of automation Um, because automation, the more you can automate, the less susceptible you are to volatility in the availability of staff, i.e. they all get put on lockdown mm. or in or in wage cost volatility. Yeah? Well, I guess um, we've also talked about electricity costs today. I hope this pizza machine doesn't cost all that much more to run it. Uh, well, I, I'm no expert on that. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at consuming pizza, but in terms of manufacturing <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah. Um, no matter which way you turn, you, you're going well, to it's I, what, what I like about that is because that's, not just a pragmatic way of dealing with the fact that labor is expensive and premises are expensive, because, of course, if it's automated, it reduces the overall size of your kitchen. So your rent's lower. Mm. Um, it also it provides a spectacle. It, it's fun. Right. It's fun. It's something fun to, to sit there and fun to watch. So you'd have the little thing in the middle. And everyone sits yes. around. Have you seen the orange juice makers, the orange um, juice machines? You, you feed in two dollars and then. The, the orange rolls down and then you can see how it goes you know how are the it's funny the isn't it it's funny as i mean years ago in london I they don't take they don't charge for tickets just to let you know. oh well years ago <laughs> in london when i when i got a, a brand fancy company car which i was very pleased with i used to go to this car wash place um in the east end i would drive miles which was i think an american model where you drive in and they chuck enormous gobbets of blue stuff at the car and then these neon lights would flash blue stuff being applied now and then it would kind of, and then there'd be pink stuff, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, it was, it was, I thought it was great. It was cleansing. It was, it was a, it was a wonderful experience. Yeah. Unless you had dinner leaky, and a show. Unless you have a leaky car, of course, and it all, all the pink stuff comes in through the roof. That's <laughs> that's slightly less fun. I suppose, ladies and gentlemen, we do not want to send a negative message. If you follow the eight precepts in in let the cash flow, you can do a lot to mitigate the risk of being paid late. Okay. But let's just try and stay positive because there are there is actually some good news coming down the pike. Yeah, and we'll be talking about it in our next podcast. Thank you for listening. Join us at uh, riabu.com or drop us an email service at riabu.com if you'd like to contribute. Perhaps you even have a story to tell that you'd like to talk to us about here on the show. Please drop us a line, and Simon and I would be very happy to hear from you. Have a great weekend and a good year ahead. <laughs>